Welcome to episode 8 of the Smalls Talk podcast. Nothing small about this podcast aside from the name. Today we're talking all things therapy with two phenomenal clinicians, Sarah Ferris and Krista Mackle. Let's get to it. The views, information, or opinions expressed today are solely the views of the individuals involved, including today's guests and does not represent absolute facts and should not be taken as a replacement for medical, clinical, professional advice, diagnosis, or medical intervention. Such views are the views of individuals and do not represent the official opinion of the International OCD Foundation. get started here i mean i think you know obviously i want to jump in to to, for both of you um what do you think is kind of the most taboo thing about therapy when it when when talking about it um and and why has that become why has it become taboo i actually think it's getting a bit better tom um because so many people are speaking about it so publicly whether it's on um, a TV show, right? Like whether it's in an after performance, um, or competition, uh, interview with a journalist, Mm -hmm. um, or whether it's starting a foundation. I think, uh, that we have had such a strong push from some of our top athletes to normalize treating your brain just as much as you would any part of your body, that it is really helpful, at least in the athletes that are competing. I think that the the difficulty lies in maybe the support systems um, mm-hmm. and people's personal beliefs about it. But I do think that it is becoming a, a bit less of a taboo topic because it's, it's just everywhere. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I think the, the importance of treating, I like what you said, treating the body, the, the, the brain, the same as the body um, is super crucial to, to athletic development um, and human development, development in general. But um, one thing I, I have noticed is that there's a difference between therapy and um, seeing a performance psychologist. Can you kind of, um, either of you kind of, you know, talk about the difference between the two? Because obviously, I know a lot of athletes that have come on the show, right, to, to, to say that they've been th- to see a, psycho- a specific sports psychologist for performance-based reasons. Yeah. Um, um, so I think I a I love that you asked this question because this is such a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. There is a diff, a very big difference between somebody who's a CMPC, which is a certified mm-hmm. mental performance coach. Uh, that person may or may not have any clinical mental health licensure. They may right. just have a sport psychology or an exercise science background, an academic degree that can help you with performance, but it may not have any. Um, mental health training, right? And so that is going to be something that you're going to want to look for. Licensed clinicians, licensed mental health clinicians may not have any sort of training in sport, right? And so mm-hmm. they may call themselves someone who treats athletes um, because, you know, growing up, they really liked it. And that might be kind of, you know, the way that they got into it. And so then you have those folks as well. And then a sport psychologist 
is, and there is a, a big push right now to actually make this an official accreditation, mm -hmm. is an APA accredited psychologist who okay. has done additional training and supervision in the realm of sports. Um, and so this is going to be someone who graduated from an APA program, who then did their postdoc in, say, uh, university counseling and in the athletic department um, or something along those lines. Uh, so you want to look and you want to see, does this person have a CMPC? If so, right, like they're certified to talk you through performance techniques, visualization, mentalization, mm -hmm. um, or are they an APA Division 47 accredited individual or affiliated, sorry, not accredited, um, affiliated individual. And so are they a mental health clinician that is competent in the realm of sport psychology? Right, right. Yeah, no, it's, it's, and I feel like that could be, you know, tough for some, especially younger athletes. Uh, you know, I, I, I can say I personally wouldn't grow in high school. I wouldn't have known the difference between the mm -hmm. three. Um, you know, how do you think we, you know, either of you can answer this. How do you think we kind of, obviously there are accreditation specific accreditations now, and, and there are different lines that have been drawn and, and um, you know, certain things that need to be done for, for certain um, accreditations, but how do we make sure that that athletes and coaches and parents know which ones to go to? Well, I think um, starting out with finding uh, local resources is going to be important. So um, whether it's going to a resource uh, that's from your um, coach or school. So if you're going, if you're on campus, uh, if you have um, support uh, just through your campus directly, that could be a good place to start to find um, resources. Otherwise, um, beyond that, looking locally, so that can get a little tricky trying to just go out on your own, trying to search for, let's say, outpatient therapy. Um, right. So somebody who's maybe not directly connected to your team. Um, and so that can get confusing and even overwhelming for people um, because they are maybe just starting out with a Google search um, or they're going on to a, a directory um, of, of uh, clinicians, and then that can be saturated. And so that can get overwhelming just trying to search um, that way. But you can start, uh, start small with whoever you might have access to that could be a resource that might be able to make a connection, whether it's, um, it could also be a physician. So right, right. whether it's a psychiatrist or a primary care provider, um, that can connect you with local resources or provide initial referrals. Um, it can also be looking for a specialist. So, um, for example, uh, I work in an outpatient setting, so I'm not specifically directly connected to any um, uh, team or affiliation mm -hmm. or, or university. And so when people come to me, they're usually contacting me either from my website, uh, a, a directory profile, um, or they've been referred by somebody. So whether it was a friend or a family member or a different clinician or a different um, healthcare provider. Right, and I think right. if you're looking for somebody who has the education um, 
awareness kind of certification, maybe not quite certification, you can look at some of the bigger, right? Um, like Sarah said, the bigger directories, right? ASP has one, CSPA has one, right? Like they're out there and there is a vetting process for individuals to be listed on them um, as opposed to just kind of the general psychology today or therapy den posting. And so I would say Google, uh, Google that, see if there's anybody in your area. And if there's not, then maybe you start, like Sarah suggested, start asking around, seeing whom other people that you know have seen and had any benefit from. I think that's one of the, I think that that is one of the bonuses of having mental health in athletics be less taboo is that you pretty much probably everybody on your team has either thought about therapy or attended therapy at some point in their career. Um, and maybe it's just asking your, your close friend, like, Hey, how did you find your person? Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to read off some, some myths that I've, that I wrote down before the show of, of things I've heard people say, you know, people say to me when I mention therapy, um, once I start therapy, I'll have to go forever. Is that, what do you, what do you, what's your opinion on that? Um, obviously, so for me, I've, I choose to go to therapy still because I know it's helping me not relapse into, into where I was and doing that maintenance work is important to me. But for some pe people, I could see them not having to go forever. Yeah. So, um, the, my style is, um, I, I generally use an, what's called evidence-based practice. So, um, those are typically cognitive behavioral therapies. Um, I also uh, utilize exposure and response prevention, uh, which is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy that is meant to treat OCD um, related disorders, anxiety disorders. And really um, these types of interventions are a bit different from traditional talk therapy where when you go to talk therapy, um, you usually, it can start out similarly where you do an initial intake assessment. And in the initial intake assessment, you're talking about what your presenting concern is. Why are you here? What do you want to um, address in therapy? What brings you in? Um, and then from there, we can talk about uh, um, basic goals, things that you want to achieve um, to find... Um, you know, change in your life. And uh, we might develop um, a plan around what interventions are going to help. And so uh, I've worked with people where they have attended five sessions and they feel great and then they move on with their lives. Uh, sometimes people do choose to stay long term and um, it sort of depends on the individual and what their needs are. And how life evolves. So mm -hmm. if they start out coming in for one particular concern um, and that gets met, well, then they might want to shift gears and start addressing something else that they hadn't really been able to prioritize yet. Yeah. I think, I think, Sarah, you, you answered that. Fantastic. Yeah. I, for a lot of people, it's a personal choice, mm -hmm. right? Does this work for me? Does this work for me right now? Um, sometimes, unfortunately, right, there are barriers to care that are unavoidable and unforeseen. Right. And so how do, I always think my job is to work myself out of a job, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet there may be a piece of you that says, actually, I do better when I see you on this interval. And right. then it becomes a plan, right? Like it's no longer, um, 
it's it's always a joint decision, right? right? It's never someone saying this is what you need to do because you're the expert on you. And as mental health clinicians, we're there to help you figure out how to be a better or a improved version. Mm-hmm. We're not there to how to tell you how to do things differently. Right, right. No, it's a really, really good point. Um, kind of, but and that's why the connection between therapist and and um, client is super, super nice. important. I mean, for me, I know I, you know, obviously I speak of my experiences because I've been, you know, seeing a therapist for first. I've been seeing Amy for eight years now, right? So, mm-hmm. but before that, um, and we talked, Sarah, you talked about talk therapy, ERP, CBT. And all of you guys expand on that more, um, the different types. But for me, I saw three different therapists before Amy, and I was at a really, I was in a really dire place. And my, but what we, but my parents and I didn't realize is I needed ERP. Right, that was the, the specific therapy I needed. So I wasn't connecting with any of these other therapists, not because they weren't good people, but because they weren't providing the exact treatment that I actually needed, and they didn't specialize in that in that exact treatment. Um, which is ERP. So, um, you know, Sarah, if you want to talk a little bit about what ERP and, and CBT is, um, I think that's, that's super useful for people to know about. Sure. Um, so, uh, exposure and response prevention is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, it, uh, is developed to help individuals identify what their triggers are that make them feel anxious and either um, how it's impacting their lives uh, in a negative way. So if um, you are uh, afraid of flying on an airplane and if you stop traveling, but you love to travel, well, our goal for exposure and response prevention might be to get you back to going on trips that you've missed out on. Um, And so exposure uh, helps us to gradually start facing the 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 stimulus or the trigger or the 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 fearful circumstance. Um, And then response prevention is uh, ways to develop um, learning and reacting differently to the initial trigger. Um, And so we really want to strengthen the response prevention plan so that instead of, say, doing a lot of compulsions or avoidance or reassurance seeking, um, we're instead going to learn a different way to respond when that trigger happens. Right, right. I mean, I could speak on it also from my my experience with, you know, using ERP with for having OCD, um, you know, we create a hierarchy of, of certain things that, that would trigger my, my obsessive thoughts and and that anxiety. So with OCD, right, you have this obsessive thought, this irrational thought that you know, is, is not rational, but you can't that, uh, eliminate that anxiety from it. And you can't decipher that it's not going to come true. And so for me, I was, still to this day, right? One of my biggest obsessions is that my intrusive thoughts is that my family's going to die in a car accident. And so um, what we would do is, is think of certain activities that, and, and certain exposures uh, in therapy that would trigger that thought. And then we'd make me sit with that, uh, that uncertainty and that anxiety. 
And so over time, right, that anxiety heightens, but over time it, it decreases and it shows you that if you keep feeding that cycle and, and keep doing the compulsion that follows that obsessive thought, it's just going to keep feeding the cycle of OCD. So ERP breaks that cycle, but you have to sit with, with extreme uncomfort, uncomfortability, um, the whole time. And so it's not, you know, I, I remember a lot of people saying like, Oh, it's probably so relaxing being able to talk about yourself. <laughs> when I said, I go to therapy, I said, uh, no, I actually am. I'm super tired after therapy because I'm fighting excruciating anxiety. And that's what really what ERP is, but it's super crucial for, especially for OCD. Um, you yeah. know, Chris, Chris and Sarah, maybe you can kind of talk about different, also different types of, of therapy and, and how they benefit di different people. Yeah. I mean, um, one of the ones that I specialize in is dialectical behavior therapy and it is a combination of CBT and mindfulness. Um, mm -hmm. And the way that we challenge emotion dysregulation is through changes in kind of like behavioral activation, right? We, we change the patterns with which you are interacting with the world and the way that you're interacting with yourself to create this life worth living is, a, is essentially the goal. Um, we do it in four key areas. One is mindfulness, so how to be in the present, right? Because anxiety loves to take us to the future and depression loves to take us to the past. Mm -hmm. um, and then distress tolerance, right? Kind of what you were just explaining. How do we get to that place where we can manage these distressing emotions or experiences without, right? Especially if you can't avoid them, right? right. So maybe, you know, you are having, um, you're dysregulated while you're sitting in traffic. Well, you, you can't really like get out of your car and just walk away from it. And so you have to figure out how to live with that. Um, and I think that that's where ER, EXRP and DBT overlap is this tolerating uncertainty um, piece and how to create that habituation and, and not needing, right, to know that you always got it right. Um, but how can you be effective? And so we do that through interpersonal effectiveness skills. Um, better communication with ourselves and with others about what we want and what we need and then crisis survival skills uh how to how to manage a crisis right how to do it in a way that doesn't blow it up or implode yeah and um to piggyback on what both of you all have said um therapy at least these days um most therapists want you to get better. They're not there to sit and judge you mm -hmm. or, you know, um, make you feel bad. You know, your goal is the goal for therapy. You define what's important. Um, and with, I think, both of the types of modalities Kristen and I are talking about, um, you don't just dive in trying to do hard things mm. after one session. Um, you know, there's a bit of rapport building, meaning you just want to feel like you click with your therapist um, and you feel like, you know, you can trust this person and they have the tools to help guide you with your goals in mind. Um, and then uh, I like to spend a good bit of time, a couple of sessions in the beginning, doing some education, we call this psychoeducation, right? Describing and discussing um, what the function is of someone's anxiety, why it's there and how it develops, and what keeps that cycle 
going or strengthening um, or why you get stuck in an anxiety cycle. And so when we start to recognize that, that's where mindfulness can be so helpful um, is bringing in your awareness where your trigger is or what first started off the cycle. Um, and then being able to start tracking that, right? We might start out with, after we get a good foundation of understanding what the root cause is, or not the root cause, but where it where it starts and how it um, develops and what keeps somebody stuck, uh, we can start monitoring that and seeing how that cycle interrupts someone's life every day. And then once we can get a good idea of that, we can really start putting the interventions into practice. Um, we can start developing a, a fear hierarchy, which is you know identifying things that might feel kind of scary, like these planned exposures, um, things that might feel kind of scary to go do, but adding in some willingness, some mindfulness, um, and then having a plan of what our response is going to be when we feel that anxiety, kind of having this plan ahead of time. You know, when I'm anxious, I'm going to use this tool instead of my normal rumination or my normal compulsion. No, it's great information. I think it's, it's, uh, Kristen, you have something to add to that? No, I was just, as Sarah was talking, I was thinking how important it is when she was describing that rapport building is, is that you're also an active participant in interviewing the therapist, right? Mm -hmm. If you have questions, you want to know answers to, um, I don't like to use should statements a lot, but they, they should be able to answer these non-judgmentally and not defensively, right? Mm -hmm. You are providing a service. And so um, kind of ex how Sarah was explaining the treatment plan. Like you walking into this appointment saying, how can you help me? You know, what other people like me have you helped? Um, what can I expect out of this? I think that during that rapport building and during that psychoeducation piece, it falls on both of you, right, to make sure that you're a good fit. Mm -hmm. And if you're not a good fit, then it is that clinician's professional responsibility to help you find somebody who might be. Right, right. right? It's, not a, it's not a personal attack. It's, it's right, like, my students yeah. don't care if I don't want to wear this pair today and I want to wear a different pair. Right. And the therapist should feel like similar. Right. Yes. No, that's such that segue is literally what I was on my mind as you were talking about it. Um, that segues us right kind of into that. How do you, you know, I've I've met a lot of people in, in the community the mental community that said I tried therapy, it didn't work. <laughs> and then I didn't try again, right? And they tried mm -hmm. maybe two sessions, they didn't relate to the therapist. And it does it's not that therapy didn't work, it might be because the rapport with the, with the therapist just wasn't, it wasn't a, a connection that fit. And so how do you encourage somebody to, to try again when they're, when they just had this firm belief that it didn't work? I, I, I always use this analogy. Um, maybe it's a metaphor, maybe it's an analogy. I don't know. I'm not an English major. Um, but right. Like you go to whole foods and you look at the tea aisle and there have got to be like 10 kinds of tea. Yep. And there are a hundred different varieties of these 10 kinds of tea. And we all feel very strongly about which one we like, or if you were like, oh no, I am in the coffee aisle, the next one over. And that's not a judgment. It's just a preference, right? And you right. try it and you try it and you try it until you figure out 
which one is the best fit for you. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do know that that is oftentimes a privilege, right? To be able to afford an appointment, to be able to right. get an appointment. Um, and so sometimes it might be to use a lot of the tools that are out there that may in fact be more accessible to you in the beginning. Right. Um, so maybe it would be something like a, like an app um, mm-hmm. that you use to maybe help you kind of like manage and kind of get your head wrapped around, okay, I can do this differently and right. The world will not burn down because I think mm-hmm. a lot of that, and Sarah's smiling. I think a lot of it is people, right? Like they want, they come because they want something to be different, but they're afraid of different because it's familiar, even if it's not functional or like beneficial, like change it. I give it zero stars. I 10 out of 10 do not recommend, right? Like change as easy, but it's the idea like, okay, something is not going well for you. Let's figure out how to make this the most accessible and manageable way to gain successes because success is, is really the only way that you're going to continue to show up and to make change. Yeah, so no, I, I love that. Explaining that with the hierarchies, right? Like the way that we break things down into very small, very specific challenges. Right. Right. You're listening to the Smalls Talk podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe. I know it is um, challenging trying to find the right fit, but I, as you know, I can speak for myself in my practice. I want the fit to work too. Um, I'm not going to be offended if somebody, you know, chooses another therapist. I just want, you know, why go to therapy if the fit isn't right? Right. Um, My job is so much easier when it feels like it is a good fit. So I encourage that. I encourage, you know, kind of the term shopping around, just interviewing. Most therapists these days will offer um, a free phone consultation, you know, 10, 20 minutes where you just uh, ask them about their style and their practice or any other specific questions you might have. Um, So that's a good way to start without making any commitment at all. And, you know, even if you get going on the first session or two and it doesn't work out, I know it can feel really discouraging because it's such a vulnerable time. The moment someone decides I need help, they might feel like they need it now or like Mm -hmm. ASAP, you know, within a week or two. And so if they get set up with somebody within a week or two, that feels like a relief but if it doesn't quite work, then they feel even more discouraged and it right. seem a lot harder to try to, you know, keep going or keep looking. Um, but it might just take a little bit of extra effort on the front end until right. you find that right fit. Right. No, for sure. I think, you know, also it's not, not to mention that, you know, we're at a point in time now in our, in, in our nation where, you know, you guys are are booked a lot of the time, right? There, there's there's you are taking a lot of clients. Um, there's um, you know sometimes there's waiting lists. Sometimes there's there's um, you know there's no space. So um, I always say it's it does. I like that term shopping around. I, I think um, it's just the same as you know having a performance coach, right? I, I feel like if if an athlete didn't mesh with me, I wouldn't take it personally. It just, I'd want the, the best for them because in their journey and 
and I want them to find that fit. Um, because at the end of the day, like you, but you don't both don't want to be sitting there. And if, and if it's, if there's no connection and it's not working, you know, you're wasting each other's time in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, another myth for us, therapy is only for serious problems. Oh, please come to us before then. I mean, come to us then, but give, give us, give us a chance. Right. right. I always tell people like, don't wait until it's bad enough. And don't, another myth with my athletes is, is that they only use our skills when it's bad enough. And I'm like, they, they don't lose power. Right. <laughs> like it's, it's not like you're going to use it all up. And yet I feel like this is a very real thing. Like I, I knew what to do, Kristen, but I wasn't there. Well, how about we use it, you know, 20 sub scores earlier, and then mm-hmm. maybe we won't get there. Right. Right. Strengthen that challenging, that challenging behavior, that challenging thought. Let's use all of the skills that we've built. Um, and no therapy is for anyone who who wants to or thinks that they might benefit from it, not just for someone who is maybe acutely ill. Right. I love that response. I love that response. Um, another myth that we have here. Um, I'm not depressed. I've just got the blues. How do you, how do you go about, um, you know, a lot of, you know, obviously I think it's gotten a lot better, um, in where we're at now with saying like, Oh, snap out of it. Right. But, um, how do you kind of, maybe their parents are a little bit old school and are saying like, you don't need therapy. Just, just, you just got the blues. You need to just go for a walk or whatever. How do you kind of advocate for people that, that, that need that extra push to get to therapy? I think um, the one that I hear more is lazy, mm. right? Oh, I'm just being lazy or so-and-so is being lazy. Right. And so I tried to provide the education that there's a difference between laziness and educate and depression, right? Like laziness is laying on the couch all day and being totally cool with it at the end of the day and being like, well, wasn't productive today. Right. right? Depression is laying on the couch all day, wanting desperately to get up, to do anything different, but being unable to. Um, And then on the other side, depression looks different for a lot of people. For a lot of our younger individuals, uh, it looks like agitation or irritation. And people don't often notice that those are, you know, symptoms of depression. They think this is a, this is an argumentative person. This is like a headstrong person, like lots of all of these um, old school ways of thinking about it. And that's really it. It's a it's a missed opportunity, mm. right? To say like, "Hey, how are you feeling?" Right. right? Like, you know, it doesn't make sense for me, but it makes sense for you. You want to talk about it? Yeah, definitely. Do you guys? One other thing I wanted to talk about also is the confidentiality piece um, of therapy. I feel mm-hmm. like sometimes that kind of gets. I, I, I've had some athletes that, I, that I've been worried about that and, you know, maybe they, they don't want whatever they say. They don't want to be repeated to their parents, but they know they're a minor. So they think they're going to have check-ins with their parents or whatever. So I'm interested kind of to hear the legal, uh, like confidentiality, you know, from a clinician side. Kristen, do you work with teens or uh, minors? So I on occasion will. Um, and so it's different state by state. In my state, the age of consent is 14. Um, 
within the medical community. And so it, it does become right. This, this tricky navigation where, you know, you may be wanting treatment and your parent or adult may get your explanation of benefits or mm-hmm. there may be um, some clinicians who, right. Or who providers who require that they have communication with the adults in your life. And, and that's very hard. Um, I personally don't, I it is one of the reasons why I actually don't work with younger people um, because it is very hard. And, and I completely understand that that is a disservice that, right. Like that we choose to, to a privilege that we choose to exercise um, not having to deal with that. But I think my individuals that I do work with uh, from the outset, we discussed that we are a team, them and I, and their parents are the support staff and how can we use them um, if there is a specific ask, uh, whether it's for something to be done or something to be not be done, the client and I will discuss it. We will write down their script. We will write down their steps. They will be the ones that deliver it. They can send me a text and I will cheerlead for them all, all they need. Um, but I do ask in the beginning that I be allowed to have a check-in with their parent or their adult every, every, so, every couple months or so. And again, it's to ask for that collateral information. What do they see different at home? What are some things that maybe they know are coming up that might be challenging that it would be helpful for me to also have an awareness about? And then ahead of time, I always discuss with my client what is or is not able to be shared, what they do or do not want to be spoken about. And and that's regardless of age. Um, I think the difference is, right, difference between confidentiality and privacy Uh, in working with a performance coach, right? There is no confidentiality if they're not a mental health clinician. There's no HIPAA. There's no um, licensing board that you can report a violation to. And so they operate under the the umbrella of privacy, right? I promise to keep your information like between us. And and there's really no checks and balances to make sure that that happens. Um, Confidentiality is something that both Sarah and I are bound to by our licenses, by our licensing boards, um, by the states that we practice in. And so there are ramifications if we do break those, if we do breach confidentiality. Right, um, right. But working with a minor is 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 very difficult. And there are people that specialize in it. Um, and I think that they're probably really, really the best fit for somebody like that. Yeah, I always absolutely. get nervous when someone says they treat from like six to 76. And I'm like, do you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. No. Yeah. That's, you know, I, I appreciate you saying that, you know, how tricky it is and, and being honest about that. Um, I think it's, it's important. And, but that just goes back to that fit, right. Of, of, of going to see somebody that really does specialize with, with, with minors. I think it's also, uh, specializing in, in minors, like you, you're coming at it from a different awareness, a different, um, like, it, it's almost, it, it's a completely different culture. And so right. the way that I might speak to you might, might not be relevant or relatable. Right. And so we're probably not going to be a great fit, but if you go and work with someone who specializes in teens, they're, they're probably going to be an amazing fit for you. Yes. A hundred percent. Everything Kristen said. Um, uh, and for those that might be, um, adults that might be concerned about their confidentiality. Either way, regardless, um, there's going to be a document in the informed consent, which is 
paperwork that you will sign before your first session starts that will outline confidentiality specifically and will um, describe uh, what confidentiality means. And in the event that something needs to be broken, confidentiality needs to be broken is usually in rare circumstances where there is, um, we, we also have to follow what's called duty to warn. And so if someone's at imminent risk of harm, harming themselves or somebody else, um, those are usually circumstances when confidentiality would need to be broken. Um, and that's right. true whether it's a minor or an adult. But otherwise, um, if it's minors um, looking to start therapy and they're worried about what is going to be shared with their parents, um, everything Kristen described was uh very clear and specific and precise. Um, uh, but otherwise, it's still going to be written in there, too. There's going to be a confidentiality agreement in that, too. Right. Yeah, no, that's I mean, I, I'm thankful that there that that rule can be broken, right? That um, with, with when there's, you know, someone's going to harm themselves or someone else, because I know for me, I was, you know, suicidal and my therapist I had to tell my parents and I think you know, at, at that stage, you you want to have that that communication. And it's super crucial to have that 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 communication. I think going back to when you were asking about modalities, um, I I do think that that duty to warn is different. Every therapist threshold is different. Mm-hmm. Um, their clinical judgment is different, and so right. really kind of trying your best to give an understanding of what's happening with you and what specific type of therapist might be the best fit. So that say right you you don't share an intrusive thought with somebody who is maybe not as experienced with intrusive thoughts and things like, Oh, this is instead of this being ego dystonic, which is what we call like uh, an unwanted thought that is ego syntonic, meaning that I am, I am considering this. Right. Right. right? And so you want to make sure that your, your therapist fit is also for reactivity as well, right? Right. Yeah. Are they going to ask you questions? Are they going to, how are they going to proceed? And maybe that's a question that you ask in that first initial interview, right? What will, what are kind of like your standard procedures for if I mention this or, Definitely. and just kind of test the waters, right? Yeah. And see, are these things um, that I think in my head, are they too scary for you? Right. No, that's and so I, true. I, I didn't even think about that, Kristen. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about like, like one of my obsessive thoughts was that I was going to, that I was going to hurt somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like if, yeah. if I'm saying and that out loud, you know, especially with maybe not context because you finally got the courage right. to share it. And the person that you're speaking to doesn't have an understanding, right. Um, whether, whether it's just because of their training or their experience or, you know, their theoretical orientation, correct. It, it could turn out a turn, bunch of different right. ways. Right. I mean, because if I'm telling a, a random person that on the street, right, that has no context of me having OCD or doesn't understand OCD, it's it's alarming. Right. So, yes. um, you know, based on someone else's training and, and their their knowledge of OCD, they might not know that that that's an unwanted thought. So now that's that's such a valid point, And I'm so glad you brought that up. And unfortunately, this has happened quite often where people yeah. might end up being hospitalized um, and they're the farthest away from committing the harm that they're exactly. so fearful of. But then it becomes this barrier to care because I can't say this thing because there's no way I'm doing that again. And, uh, 
and then it's just uh increase like suffering yes for forever right yeah. no i mean that's that's why it's so important to like you said like uh you know ask about standard practices it's almost like applying for like when you're getting inter interviewed for a job so like my parents Absolutely. always told me it was like you're interviewing the, the people that are interviewing you right you're interviewing the company that's hiring you right you're you should be you know asking the the potential therapist questions about about what they what how they yeah. operate i think it i mean and i don't want to speak for sarah but i it's a privilege to get invited into somebody else's world in order mm -hmm. to be able to help them navigate it differently and so I should be the right person for you. And if I'm not right, it falls on both of us to say like, I don't know, but let me figure out how to help you get to the right person. Yeah, yes. definitely. Entirely. I have the same attitude. Yeah. Uh, one more myth I want to, I want to bust here is uh, <laughs> my therapist has everything in life figured out and is sitting there judging me. <laughs> well, your therapist probably has their own form of therapy, which is called supervision. It is therapy for the therapist. Yes. Um, and so, no, they don't have all the answers, but they do probably have a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's definitely a, a common one. I, something I thought of, you know, as a teen, I was like, man, they have it all figured out. <laughs> I think what's interesting, my athletes, um, more so now with my, with my uh, early adult athletes, they mm -hmm. will make sure like, Hey, you know, Kristen, like who helps take care of you? Right. Like this is kind of such a piece of, you know, making sure that they have a good support roster. That if something has happened within our community and they know that, you know, maybe I am hearing a lot about it and it's an upsetting something, they'll check in and say like, Hey, are you, are you good? And so I, I think that that like reciprocal relationship yeah, is, absolutely. is yeah. really special. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Therapists are people too. We, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. we, we will, you know, sit on the couch and watch several episodes of the newest, you know, streamed show. And, you know, we all have our own things as well. Um, right. This makes me think also of the topic of self-disclosure, which um, is basically therapists sharing details about themselves. Um, when I was in school, when I was in grad school um, and, and in, you know, earlier, you know, um, older school ver versions of psychotherapy, it's strongly discouraged to self-disclose. Um, mm. There's sort of this, I was taught to kind of think about being a quote blank slate, mm. meaning you don't bring any of your own sort of like thoughts or biases or um, opinions into the therapy room. Right. Um, and I think that there can be a lot of really good benefit of non self disclosure. But what I see nowadays is, um, and maybe specifically in the population that I work with, um, a lot of my clients appreciate if I share a little detail about myself, whether it's something that I can relate to in some way that they're going through, or if it's like, you know, just as an example, recently I had to take a bit of time off for um, a surgery. And so, you know, I needed to at least inform them of that, but sometimes they also want to check in and see how I'm doing with that. Um, right, and so sure. I'm, I'm willing to self-disclose a bit on those types of things. Of course, the therapy is going to primarily be focused on them. I'm not going to be spending the whole hour talking about me, 
Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's a relatability aspect for sure. No, I, I totally agree. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it's, it's wrong to say that we can be blank slates because we're human beings and we've lived exactly. life and, you know, I, I can't be entirely non-biased. And so I think it's, it's a better approach to recognize where those limitations might be individually. Mm. Um, and, no, and I totally agree. Those things out. I got told one of the same one of one of my jobs, and um, you know, I got I got told that I had to. My client should never know if I had the worst day or the best day, and I listen. I I get what their their message is, and I but and I shouldn't be you know totally erratic and just crazy if I had a terrible day. I get that I should be managing it, and and I'm in the workplace, and I should be professional, but. To say that I shouldn't feel emotions, that's just not physically possible. I And I think, Sarah, I think a lot of that um, that direction on how to be the provider comes from your specific education or your modality, your treatment modality that you use. It's very, um, very different depending upon that. And so that might also be something that you look for as you're interviewing therapists because, right, I am... I am someone who errs on the side of, right, like sharing, right? Like with this mm -hmm. in a very purposeful and specific manner, right. if I can add something that says, hey, this is a hard thing, you know, I have struggled with something, right? Like from that empathy perspective, or maybe crying in session with somebody, right? right. These are all things that, I don't know, maybe in the 80s or the 90s, you would have been told like, don't do. Right. Right. And it's just, if, the, if that is truly what you're looking for, there's a, pro there's a provider out there for you. But absolutely, like she said, if if your provider is spending 50 of their 60 minutes talking about themselves, that is going to be a red flag that maybe <laughs> um, maybe you should try someone else. All right. For sure. This was super. I mean, I honestly for myself, too, I thought it was super informative. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure our listeners will get so much out of this. And I know it's been a topic that has been asked, you know, when I when I post on Instagram, kind of what, what people want to hear. Um, people want to hear about therapy and, and, and hear it from clinicians. So I appreciate both of you coming on and, and sharing your expertise and, and sharing your honesty and your answers and your experience. For sure. Thanks for having us. Thank you.